This week on the Backtable Podcast. So kind of fulfilling the promise of personalized precision medicine is even more important in upper tract than in other, di- other diseases because they are not strict schemes and the heterogeneity of the disease is out. And each time you intervene with a tumor, you're changing the natural history, similar to bladder cancer, right? Seeding happens, this happens, that happens. So you, you, you're changing the biology, you're changing the clinical behavior. So over-treatment, under-treatment is what we have to get away from. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Sharak Shuriat from the University of Vienna, where he is the chairman and professor. Thanks for joining us on the show, Sharak. How are you doing today? Thank you so much. Thank you, Aditya. Thank you for having me with you. Excellent. Well, I think, you know, certainly from my perspective, when I think about upper tract urothelial carcinoma, kind of goes hand in hand with Chirac. You know, really, I would say paradigm shifting collaborations in the early 2000s with the upper tract urothelial carcinoma collaboration, which not only shed so much light on this orphan disease, but in many ways kind of changed the way that we do collaborative research uh, for rare tumors. Can you just comment a little bit on that experience for us, Chirac? Thank you, Aditya. Uh, actually, you know, the whole story about upper tract just happens like every story that we have uh, in urology where, there's, where we have a rare entity and, you know, not enough data from large prospective trials or well-designed prospective uh, collection of data to make a decision. So it, it just, I, I can, you know, clearly uh, remember the day I was on call and I was with uh, Vitaly Margulis on call and we were sitting there and waiting for a patient to go to the OR at the VA and we we're thinking, and I was asking my question about upper tract and he was giving me, you know, he's a brilliant guy. He was giving me the answers from uh, the textbooks and I was sort of, you know, unhappy with the answers because the data that I was reading was, you know, not consistent with the textbooks and so on because they were all based on small retrospective single center cohorts. So we came up with, uh, at that night, it was a Saturday night with a with thing, we're going to change this disease and we're going to do something to, to really impact it. And based on a previous experience that I had uh, with uh, several mentors like Art Zagalowski and uh, Seth Lerner, uh, building, you know, multi-center data sets retrospective to answer questions, we, we took, I took that experience and tried to reach out to many friends uh, across the globe that I met in the academic world to sort of create a sort of a retrospective data set uh, of their experience, their management, and, and to try to understand what are the key issues in that disease. What I think has been the most incredible experience is a lot of people have come together. We have shed light on a lot of uh, dark areas in the management of upper tract or understanding of upper tract, but obviously we have sh- fallen short a lot, uh, of a, a lot of important questions because they need to be addressed with prospective uh, studies and molecular analysis and so on. But I think by putting the light and, and focusing a little bit on this disease entity, suddenly it it became an important disease entity. You go to the EAU uh, meeting, you have full poster sessions and lecture series on upper tract. It seems like it is such a uh, high prevalent disease. It isn't, but it shows you that you know, by, by creating research and, uh, you know, shedding light, increasing awareness, a lot of more brilliant people will come and, and investigate it and, and make a difference. 
it has been an incredible thing because I've met more people than ever before through that. And the research has been really more fulfilling and friendships have been created. Yeah. And I mean, that's absolutely a part of it. Well, so I'm going to take, uh, take advantage of the time that we have to really kind of pick your brain from, mm -hmm. from A to Z. So when patients are coming in, generally my experience is, and I think the data suggests that um, typically it's going to be a hematuria evaluation that shows something in the upper tract. Let's just start out with, you know, basics. What are the critical parts of the history and uh, physical exam when you see a new patient with upper tract disease or suspected upper tract disease? Aditya, you're absolutely right. Look, uh, the, the, the most common sign for upper tract UTL carcinoma is hematuria. As we, you know, it's well written, but it could be as well, you know, flank pain or something from a lesion in the, in the ureter, blocking the outflow and creating hydronephrosis and some symptoms that are similar to that. Most patients get a workup for hematuria that is a standard workup. And we know these have all the flaws as we've seen in women and men, women get delayed referrals for hematuria workup and male a little bit earlier. And part of that workup, you know, in the United States, you have a, a clear workups strategy where you have a cystoscopy, cytology, and uh, upper tract imaging, which has been consistent with a, you know, sort of a CAT scan with delayed cuts, right? Uh, in Europe, um, the workup is often associated with uh, ultrasound as urologists are using the ultrasound and seeing their hydronephrosis or some, you know, less clear signs of an upper tract tumor. If nothing is found in the bladder, you know, you have a, a, a CT scan with, uh, with a, as a reflex test with um, uh, delayed cuts and urogram phase which is also a, a, a part of the, of the work about the history that is very important for upper tract that is often forgotten, I think, for me is the patients with Lynch syndrome. So it's, it's patients that either have a, a, a family history of Lynch syndrome, uh, and you know, you have the Amsterdam type two criteria that we use for a little bit identifying those patients. So that is basically a patient that has a personal history of Lynch syndrome that is generally younger than uh, 65 years or has a first degree relative less than 50 uh, years old with Lynch syndrome or has two first degree relatives. So I, I ask that always at every patient that shows up with hematuria because that would trigger me a little bit to be more suspicious in upper tract, which is, you know, uh, you have somewhere estimated, you know, 10 to 15% of the patients with upper tract having some Lynch syndrome spectrum disease. The other thing that is very important for me is uh, the background of the patients, which in Europe has to do with the Balkan endemic nephropathy exposure, you know, and in, in the United States, you certainly have the Chinese herb exposure. So, uh, you, you know, their aristolochic acid, these are part of some Chinese herbs, uh, that have been used in traditional Chinese medicine, and they increase your risk of having, you know, sort of a DNA adduct and creating a higher risk for upper tract urethral carcinoma. We have it here as part in the Balkans, you know, close, uh, in the tributaries of the Danube, you know whole villages that have been exposed to that in a natural bread consumption, grain consumption, while they cut this, this herb with and have it in the brain. So this is another exposure factor that would look otherwise, you know, standard workup, I would say. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, I, I impressed to the residents and fellows, you know, at least endometrial cancer, colon cancer, upper tract cancer history, and not only for, you know, the screening of these patients, but should they go on to develop, you know, more aggressive disease, metastatic disease. If they have um, MSI, microsatellite instability, that could predict, of course, you know, an excellent response to a checkpoint inhibitor, uh, for instance. So I think that um, I actually will reflexively send all upper tract patients for medical genetic counseling 
or if that doesn't happen, at the very least, request the pathologist to perform MSI testing. Mm-hmm. Is that similar to your practices in Vienna? Look, it, it, it is always um, two questions. I absolutely agree. We, that's what we do standard, but I think it's for a university setting, you know, something that is easy, accessible and, you know, easy, mannerable. I think for the community setting or for, for a lot of the colleagues out there that don't have that easy access to a, you know, expert pathologist or the resources to do that, I think at least the Amsterdam criteria for identifying patients at risk could be the first area where they can identify the 15 to 20% patients. It, it is, you know, a white catch, so they will identify the patients. But even in ideal setting, I would uh, do the same thing on a pathology or uh, get a genetic and germline testing as well. The, the question, you know, how, do they, how does it change therapy? It, it's such a difficult concept because obviously, even if they, they are MSI high, they're good responders to, you know, cisplatin-based chemotherapy as well. And most of these tumors will sort of have a basal uh, subtype. So it's very, very difficult to say, but certainly it opens in the United States because the pembrolizumab that has been approved for MSI high tumors, the access to the drug. In Europe, it does, it's not been approved um, for this setting, but um, so it, it, it is less of a value for us in here, but Still, I think uh, with the most, uh, uh, we deliver the therapy ourselves in Europe, the urologists give the therapy, the checkpoint inhibitors, as well as the chemotherapy, we will consider it and talk to our hospital to allow that for that indication, as you mentioned. Excellent. Excellent. So ideally, it sounds like when you're imaging the upper tracts, you're obtaining a CT urogram with excretory phases. Is everybody getting chest imaging? Well, not really. Uh, we don't do it unless you have the identification of a tumor that makes sense, you know. So it's always uh, the CT urogram. We, we get it, MR urogram in patients who can, for some reason, in the renal function and, you know, more and more patients today will refuse a CT because of a fear of high radiation dose. It's a second choice, but uh, which is uh, more difficult, accessible in the United States. As, as mentioned, in Germany and Austria, we use the ultrasound quite often. Doesn't show us urethral tumors, but at least it gives a first indication if you have a hydronephrosis as a in in office tool to identify. But the CT urogram without imaging of the chest is is the standard for us. Also in the European guidelines. Okay, so you performed your uh, office cystoscopy with no bladder lesions, and do you typically obtain a cytology at that time? Absolutely, we obtain the cytology, and you know uh, the cytology performance of cytology for lower tract is highly variable depending on your cytopathologist and on the method you obtain it. But its performance for upper tract lesion, it's even worse if you have the voided cytology. Now, if you have selective cytology of the disc of both ureters with a wash, your, your performance, uh, specifically your sensitivity improves, but cytology in general is not a great test for upper tract. So, but we do it for the lower tract, specifically to rule out carcinoma in situ or other tumors that are not seen depending if you use narrowband imaging or, or you have already in office some form of, you know, Hexvix uh, imaging. So if you suspect that if your bladder is essentially clean and you have a positive cytology and some imaging suggesting an upper tract tumor, how does that factor into your uh, next management, say high-grade cytology? It's a very important point. Number one, you want to make sure you don't have anything in the bladder. Certainly you could have something in the prosthetic urethra, very unlikely. Very rare tumors that happen there, but could happen, and you would have seen a lesion during your cystoscopy that would be suspect. But then you, your, your question is to evaluate the upper tract. And, and you're touching a key issue that 
you know, one of the early articles was, uh, if I remember well, an article that you've written uh, when you were uh, a student uh, working with um, Jeffrey Cadido, right? It was like a management of the upper tract, you know, conservative management and so on. So I think upper tract tumor, similar to every cancer in, in, in urology, has been suffering from one disease with two uh, consequences. One is a monotherapy concept, and uh, the consequences are under therapy in a lot of patients, like now systemic therapy when they need it as a, you know, sort of a sandwich approach in invasive tumors and over therapy in a lot of patients taking the kidney out while it is a low grade tumor that could be managed or sometimes even a higher grade tumor that could be uh, without papillary lesion. So for us, I think the weapon of choice, similar to the, cystos the cystoscope defined the speciality of urology, I think the uteroscope is the next weapon of choice, identifying that lesion and understanding what lesion it is, where it's located, and uh, can, is it multifocal or not, can I save that kidney? Specifically in elderly, multimorbid patients, uh, patients that are at risk uh, for further kidney deterioration. Yeah, absolutely. So clearly when it comes to upper tract, you know, staging and grading and understaging, undergrading, misgrading, misstaging is kind of at the crux of this. Let's go back to the imaging. When you're looking at a CT scan, you know, what are the features that kind of put you on high alert that this could be potentially a nasty tumor? Obviously, you know, uh, on the imaging, you have subtle signs and you have pretty significant signs and uroradiologists will be similar to the uropathologist, your best friend in helping to identify those, those signs. You know, if you have a filling defect, obviously, you're, you're, you're obliged to investigate it. Could be many things, right? But uh, at least make sure it is not a cancer. If you have a feeling defect in high grade cytology, you know, some colleagues have been uh, arguing, why do you need a uroscopy that may increase your intravesical recurrence rate through the manipulation of the tumor? I would still argue that, uh, you know, you could have two events that are non-related and, and there's strategies to lower the intravesical recurrence rate if that is your worry and, and may not lead to that such delay in effective, you know, definitive therapy. But um, other signs are, you know, the thickening of the of the ureter wall or in the renal pelvis, you know, hydronephrosis or and a stranding around the, the ureter. These are, I think, the most difficult cases, this, you know, type of carcinoma, papillary lesion. And you're thinking this could be some form of invasive tumor or carcinoma inside the, of the ureter wall that is very subtle. I think the CT scan in itself or the MR scan in itself, if you don't see a clear lesion or a filling defect, on the urographic phase is an indication to further investigate it, that region. It's not a clear sign of this is something going on, right? Right, right. I think, I mean, sometimes it's obvious if you have a tumor in the renal pelvis, for instance, that's clearly infiltrating into the parenchyma, you know, that's one where I'd like to get your opinion on this, going back to the cytology. If you have an infiltrating mass with a positive cytology, <laughs> is that a patient that, that you may, you know, consider let's just say like neoadjuvant chemotherapy, is that going to be information enough? Absolutely. So th there are these cases where you, you have a positive cytology, right? And, and according to the Paris criteria, so you're, you're, you know, quite sure about it. You have a good uh, uropathologist and, and you see a clear lesion in the renal pelvis that is indicated. So for me, this would have two consequences. That is enough for me to consider a patient for some form of systemic therapy. Now, the, the next question is, what is his renal function? Is he able to get cisplatin-based chemotherapy? And we have seen this type of patients 
where the tumor shrinks, right, after certain cycles of chemotherapy that you can, you know, switch to cisplatin if, if you don't believe cisplatin initially was the right thing, couldn't get cisplatin. Now, I want to I wanna put two important points there. These patients, the patient you describe, may not need ureteroscopy. I would feel comfortable with that, not to delay therapy. But number two, this patient is also highly likely to have lymph node metastasis. So I would definitely try to look at a CT scan and, and get a feeling how many cycles of chemotherapy do I really want to give? Three, four cycles, you know, the neoadjuvant concept has been three or four cycles in the bladder. I would rather push to the four. If I get, get six in, yeah, dealer's choice, but at least, at least get four. Two years ago, I would say six cycles with positive lymph nodes, no questions asked, definitive chemotherapy. Today, based uh, on, on studies, we've seen that maybe four cycles with a maintenance chem uh, immunotherapy may be an option, and interval maybe nephroeterectomy if you have a complete response. One could discuss that. And uh, another concept I would like to, to just, you know, that has been really in the last year is, is carboplatin really that much worse than cisplatin in the upper tract? And, and look, this, this, I don't, I cannot say yes or no. It's based on a PAL trial. You know, you have a, you have a, and you have some other data showing in cisplatin eligible patients, carboplatin may not perform as bad as we thought previously. Anyway, if the patient is cisplatin, actually you're going to give cisplatin. So I don't know how much that helps me further, but uh, you've touched on a key point. And I think I, I see you're, you're, I know you're very well, you come from the same school of thought. You would consider neoadjuvant chemotherapy in this patient. There's literally no evidence for that, except, you know, the, the ACOG acrine, you know, prospective single arm trial with those as MVEC of Vitaly Margulis, but, and then some retrospective data, and we publish a huge retrospective cohort. You guys publish a huge three, three center retrospective cohort showing that it may benefit. I think it is the right approach, but level one evidence shows that probably an adjuvant uh, strategy is based on level one, based on disease-free survival as an endpoint, which I don't think is an adequate endpoint for this disease, should be overall survival. But I believe in what you said, I would, I would, in a patient that I consider high risk, like high volume tumor, high risk based on all the criteria as you've described, and potentially even with positive lymph nodes, I would go for systemic therapy first choice. And based on imaging response, then trigger a, a radical nephrotrectomy based on the imaging response, as you've mentioned. If he's not cisplatin eligible, what are you going to do then? What do you think, Aditya? Would you give him a carboplatin as a, as a strategy? Because you feel he's based on the newer data? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. You know, if you'd asked me three or four years ago, you know, just the word carboplatin would kind of make me cringe and I wouldn't even consider it for a patient of mine. But I think there's, I mean, you know, the PAL trial was compelling. Um, and it, it is getting complicated. I mean, go, going back to like lymph node positive patients, as you mentioned, you know, it used to be six cycles of induction therapy, maybe restage them after three or four, see how they're doing, and then consolidate them. I personally think that, you know, the approach that you described of four cycles, consolidate with surgery, and then adjuvant uh, checkpoint inhibitors is, is more compelling. I haven't completely shed my biases against carboplatin. I think I would probably lean towards um, cisplatin ineligible and approach for a checkpoint inhibitor. But these are, you know, these are the outstanding questions. And um, I also recognize I have my biases between Memorial, where Jonathan Coleman led a neoadjuvant study, and between UT Southwestern, where it's essentially high-grade upper tract urothelial carcinoma, you get neoadjuvant chemotherapy 
almost no questions asked because you might miss this window where 60% of, up to 60% of patients may be cisplatin ineligible. So that's been the philosophy that I've subscribed to. But I, I recognize that, you know, you have this tour de force level one PALT trial that just doesn't exist in the neoadjuvant. You've got your pathologic downstaging. You've got your retrospective outcomes, you know, these MD Anderson series that are pretty compelling, but uh, the same caliber data is not there, I suppose. And the other question is also, for me, I mean, you have the Checkmate 274, right? Looking at the adjuvant nivolumab and in the upper tract tumors just don't perform as well as single agent adjuvant. Obviously, I don't think anybody in that trial got a neoadjuvant chemotherapy for the upper tract. So I think, I think you, 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 I'm, I'm not sure that checkpoint inhibitors are as effective now based on, on, on the data that, you know, Babisha Faltas looking at the basal type tumors in upper tract, you would think yes, you know, and your high proportion of Lynch syndrome uh, signatures that you see should be, but, um, I think chemotherapy is still the way to go. And if you could get carboplatin in instead of, of, you know, if you have no choice, probably better, but I wouldn't use it in a neoadjuvant. I agree with you. I mean, uh, in a neoadjuvant, then cisplatin is what we, but that's again, the, the major drawback we have, we have, you're extrapolating from bladder cancer to the upper tract still in a lot of decision-making, you know, key points because the data is just too weak in upper tract, despite all those efforts. But new adjuvant, I think, is a strategy that's been underused in the upper track. But I have to mention, it will lead in the upper track to significant amount of overtreatment, even more than in a bladder cancer, probably, right? Yeah. I mean, two, two comments. I think there was a, a study from the upper track urethral carcinoma collaboration from 2009 that showed if you actually just use cytology, presence or absence of hydronephrosis, you would you would actually overtreat about 60% of the patients. So there's going to be some, some serious overtreatment. And then the other point that we'd just like to make and hear your comment on is it does seem that there is a relatively higher proportion of FGFR3 mutations, even among Absolutely. patients with high-grade disease. And that could be another option for uh, you know, exploring FGFR3 inhibitors in, in this context. Yeah, this is, this is a, a, you've been involved in, there have been three or four key papers, I think, in, in this area where we look at these scores, not only genetically, but epigenetically between lower and upper tract. And we've learned a lot about them and not only about the, the, the significance or the, the alterations there are that differentiate these two diseases, but that are signatures specific to the upper tract. But, you know, the preponderance of those alterations have triggered that uh, upper tract is really an FGFR driven disease to a large degree. And those therapies that we already using in, in the second line bladder cancer, metastatic second line bladder cancer, may be good uh, therapeutic strategies to use in, in, in upper tract early on, if you identify an FGFR mutation or fusion. Now the question is, if you're going to get Lynch syndrome signatures, why not get immediately, you know, FGR? Because if you have a you know, this is all about precision medicine nowadays, you know? Absolutely. One kind of question about these infiltrative masses. Do you have any opinions on percutaneous biopsies? <laughs> yeah. Um, when you and I were in training together, so percutaneous biopsies was sort of, we don't want to do that because uteroscopy, you know, became really a fashionable, great thing. And we certainly were very scared and ureteric carcinoma is such that the, your, your biopsy core and it could lead, you know, to uh, metastasis there or seeding there. So I wouldn't see really a big benefit 
if you can uh, stay within a system, right? But do I think it's as a devil as it used to be in the past? No, because our biopsy technique and everything has changed. And I'm, I'm not sure with it. But the question is, if you can get a, endoscopically to it, and if your cytology is negative, and you can get endoscopic to it, because you need some tissue proof of the cancer before you deliver the therapy, I would try to go endoscopically and not get it percutaneous biopsy. But I wouldn't feel as terrible as I used to feel in the past, I have to admit. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, once upon a time, anything percutaneous as it pertains to upper tract was anathema that, you know, you're going to get roasted. If it's an infiltrative mass and say our oncologist really wants some tissue prior to treatment, I'm pretty much okay with it. I think with the coaxial techniques, it's Mm. safe and the risk of seeding is fairly minimal. I wouldn't feel comfortable leaving a nephrostomy tube in, you know, I don't like that strategy. I think the likelihood of seeding that tract is, is pretty real, but Older, sicker patient, save them an anesthetic, mm. do it under local. I do think there's maybe a bit more of a role and a bit more of this kind of dogma surrounding upper tract. And I know this is kind of getting into the weeds on some of the practical things, but this is what, you know, these are the decisions we have to make, I suppose. So, you know, my, my stance is if it's infiltrative, you just need to get a tissue diagnosis. It's pretty reasonable. And as, as you're clearly aware, sometimes you go in and the imaging suggests there's going to be something super obvious and you don't see anything. And, you know, whether mm-hmm. that's growing extra luminally into the parenchyma, et cetera, can be a bit of a, bit of a quandary. Absolutely. So we, I think that what is upper, makes upper tractum still a challenging disease, more this sort of each time you intervene, each case is quite different and, and it's a low volume of cases. And certainly there's cases where you, you really need to biopsy it. I agree with you, no percutaneous access, um, no percutaneous tube, uh, leave it behind, but at least, uh, biopsying it, I think the risk is very low for seeding and so on. The, the question is, if you're going to get a biopsy, you may get even a better specimen in, in the age of, you know, you know, genetic sequencing may it help uh, your decision-making in the next steps, not for the primary therapy, but maybe for a precision medicine approach, probably this is going to be more useful in the future. Then, you know, your endoscopic, you know, minute, uh, fragmented deliver that is not even good enough for your uropathologist to say what it is and lo and behold to tell us how to direct our therapy. So let, let's hear your kind of approach. Let your, now you've got a patient that you're going to take to a ureteroscopy. First question, is that first ureteroscopy in your mind, is that a diagnostic ureteroscopy? Is there a therapeutic ureteroscopy, potentially both? How do you approach it? It really depends, you know, on, on, on the clinical scenario, as you described, you know, sometimes you have a clinical scenario where you just want to get specimen and, and it looks for the imaging pretty clear and unfortunately septology is not positive or something, then, you know, I would go up and say, I want to have a, as little manipulation as I can, uh, or little uh, manipulation. Um, and then obviously the large proportion of cases where we really believe we make a difference. Specifically with uroscopies, those that you get a specimen um, that is adequate for your grading at least, you know, and get from the uteroscopic diagnostic uteroscopic some information about the tumor biology and behavior, multifocal, large, small, pedunculated, not pedunculated, sessile. You, you kind of want to get that feeling, location, easy, how easy it is to access and all that. So you want to collect that information and often that is also you, you if you you have the feeling this is a tumor that i could consider for a kidney sparing approach i would use it also as a therapeutic approach you 
So I'm always the therapeutic strategy with it. So I have the laser on standby for using it, not only for tissue acquisition, but also sometimes for obtaining uh, the adequate specimen. And also my approach to that, you know, is always a sort of a no touch technique. I would go into the distal ureter, I move up, you know, we all learned with Peggy Pearl how to do it for stone. So it becomes very useful for this and very carefully to monitor all the ureter below. I like to get an access sheath to that so I can go multiple tops, uh, times up and down after I've uh, looked at the lower part, still in the distance from the tumor. And also with a sort of a concept of probably the seeding of the, my tumor manipulation being, you know, coming through the access sheet out and not into the bladder. But this is voodoo a little bit, sorry. No, I think, I mean, I've, I've actually thought about, uh, you know, these exact types types of things. You know, if your urine's coming straight in, out of the, you know, meatus for the introitus versus okay. spending some time in the bladder, conceivably that could decrease the risk of lower tract recurrences. So you start out with a semi-rigid ureteroscope mm -hmm. and you know, basically just enter the distal ureter, clear your ureter, get up to the pelvis collecting system, and then you'll go back in, get an axis sheath up, and um, clear your, your renal pelvis. Is that right? Yes, not always. Um, you know, now with the single-use ureteroscopes, I, I just, um, many times I go with a flexible ureteroscope immediately in, uh, depending on if on the imaging I've seen the location of the tumor. If the tumor is in the distal mid-ureter, I really prefer the semi-rigid, as, as you mentioned. But if I see it's further up, I know I'm going to, you know, use the flexible anyway. I'm going to look at it and it is a single-use instrument. Even if it wouldn't be a single-use, I probably would go with a flexible ureteroscope. Um, the challenge is obviously getting into the ureter and so on, but you could place the wire before. If you're worried, and I try not to do that in cases where, because I want to look at carcinoma inside, but if I've seen a pavily lesion, what am I looking yeah. for? Pavily? So I'm not that worried of that wire making a red dot in my ureter. So I, I, this is the question, you know, there's, there's a strong, uh, school of thoughts, you know, uh, Traxer is, you know, one of the European gurus on, on this is he feels like flexible ureteroscope or you die. You know, I feel like. I don't understand why, because with a semi-rigid, you get better specimens and everything. If you want to get specimens, right? I don't know what, if you have an approach, a specific no-go on it. I, I feel like I, I'm just getting older day by day. I, I love a semi-rigid. I think it's a great instrument in, in the ureter in Absolutely. my hands. Um, you know, you got to know what you're doing. It can be dangerous. And I, I hear you hundred percent. I mean, we have Manoj Manga here, you know, people like Olivier, that Peggy, they're just absolute yep. whizzes with the flexible ureteroscope. So typically, do you use a basket, a big opsy, a brush? What are your, your kind of tips and tricks for actually obtaining this, this coveted specimen? Yeah, I think this is everybody who's, who's doing it on a regular basis knows how frustrating it is. You know, it's to obtaining a specimen and the pathologist not laughing at you and saying, what have you sent to me? So basically, I make it dependent on the location of the tumor and how it looks. I, I like to get an adequate specimen for diagnosis, specifically if um, I had a negative uh, cytology, because it's going to determine a T1 and higher or something tumor like this that I suspect to be T1 and higher or less, I really want to know what it is, specifically a tumor grade. For that to obtain an adequate specimen, you have to adapt your, your tools to the location. So if it's in a calyx, I like sort of a, a, a basket that is not uh, like an encircled basket or something like that, that you don't get the papillary, you don't get a, too much bleeding for visibility. Otherwise, I prefer, you know, some sort of a flat wire basket as you have, you know, in the past, Segura basket or something. 
that can get the specimen off. I often use, before I do that, a, a holmium laser to dissect it out, you know, depending on the location, so I get an adequate specimen. I like uh, what Serena Mateen has shown me, you know, many years ago, the push technique. So I, I get a basket or whatever instrument you want, and you push the specimen in. Instead of pulling out and not tearing the specimen and ripping it in pieces, you get a better specimen. Other tricks are certainly, um, and the big ups here I've used, I don't know your experience is front loaded. It's, it's, it's a mega device. I think it's rare indications I've used it. And the, the homing laser is for me, the, my, my preferred tool to get, you know, dissected out, even in the ureter, resect it out and then get a basket to, to, to trap it and pull it out. I don't know if you do. I, I think I echo exactly what you're saying. I mean, starting out with, I think you need to be familiar with the tools, whether it's a piranha, a big opsy, mm. a brush, um, a basket. A basket's my go-to. And sometimes, you know, when you take off the tumor, you do run into some bleeding, but you get a good specimen. I think generally that's manageable with, with the laser. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I do is after I do my biopsy manipulation, et cetera, I'll, I'll get a cytology at that point. I always send off a specimen both as a cytology as well as for pathology. So I try to do, you know, cover my bases as much as I can to get a diagnosis and be able to move forward. But the ureter is, you know, ostensibly more tricky. You know, sometimes you see a stricture, et cetera, and, you know, you can't obviously angle into it. And I'll just, you know, take my time, whether it's three or four brushes or, okay. you know, a prana and, and doing the best that I can. I mean, it's always humbling when you think you've done something, you come out and there's, you know, a cell on your biopsy. And then for the brushes, I, you know, I cut the brushes off and I send those both as a cytology and a, and a pathology. I think uh, I'm laughing while you're telling this because this is sort of the UT Southwestern school I went through is <laughs> the same. Split your odds, get a cytology at least. And it makes so much sense. I absolutely agree with you. I try to always get a specimen for cytology. So before I start, I never thought about after, but that makes even more sense to get a, you know, sort of a selective cytology uh, of that uh, uh, region, right? I get a uh, selective, you, you, I mean, basically you look up, you do a retrograde, you get a selective cytology, you do a retrograde, and then you move to the specimen. And then it would be great to have a, a, um, a specimen. And you, the, the piranha, I've used three pronged uh, instruments, you know, whatever you need to use to get that specimen out, out of, you know, the armamentarium is getting always better. I've never used a tulium laser or something like that, but certainly uh, would, you know, the energy source would be good enough to dissect it out. But I really try to dissect a specimen out if I can. Fantastic. And, you know, as you were kind of describing the input when you're doing your ureteroscopy, size, focality, location, presence or absence of carcinoma inside to it, it just kind of occurred to me when I talked to the residents about doing TRBTs, there's been some very nice papers on standardized checklists. Checklist, yeah. Absolutely. I think for, you know, because there is prognostic information from all of these clinical right. parameters that if you don't obtain them at the point of care, you know, it's not like the next person is going to know exactly what transpired, but it's, uh, you know, it's a thought. And, and I guess what I'm getting at is, so you're making an assessment now, is this a tumor that's potentially manage with a kidney sparing approach mm -hmm. and maybe if you don't mind just kind of running through you know what that looks like in your in your practice absolutely i, I think aditya you you touched on on something so we have you know we also publish and the idea doesn't come from us you know uh, it came i think the first one i've seen it is it was harry her coming with this checklist concept right and you know we know the checklist from everything and and the 
checklists that have been introduced for patient safety in medicine, similar to other industries. So we have in, in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer a checklist because it's exceptionally important for your risk attribution and your therapeutic strategy, the same thing in upper tract. So our, our reports are very uh, structured and these are the points I want. Adult care, if you turn, hand, I always tell them, adult care, if you, you turn left, right, I don't care, don't describe all those details, nobody cares about it. Just tell me the key factors that will change my prognosis and my risk stratification. And here's the point, um, the, 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 because Unfortunately, the, the, the point, uh, the, the biggest limitation of upper tract is our specimens are not adequate enough and our CT imaging is not adequate enough to risk attribute, you know, a muscle invasive versus non-muscle invasive disease. And thereby, uh, I'm getting a feeling of the likelihood of macrometastasis and lymph node metastasis and so forth. So the, the upper tract is sort of classified in two groups. It's high risk and low risk. And this is a moving target. It's a dynamic target. And you, you mentioned the, the early papers uh, uh, with Jay Rahman and so on, we tried to to come up with a, a, an idea while you were in the lab, right? And, and Jay was with us at UT Southwestern and, and Karim Ben Salah and tried to come up with an idea how we can categorize a tumor that is so safe to treat with kidney sparing that we wouldn't lose any because the standard of care was radical nephrohydrectomy for every patient. And we know all the series that have we've seen, 20 to 25% of patients got an unnecessary radical intervention with detriments, uh, not only surgical detriments, uh, side effects, but also kidney, uh, kidney function detriments long-term. So which patients can we safely spare the kidney without an increased risk of metastasis and progression, but accepting a high risk of reintervention without metastasis? This was sort of the concept. So the criteria that are currently set forth are very restrictive, the guidelines, and every case can have an indication to be a little bit more pushing the agenda. So what do we call a low risk tumor that is sort of, we believe safe for kidney sparing approach is a unifocal disease, first of all. But we all know if you have three little TA tumors next to each other, that's not what we mean. Unifocal, we mean renal pelvis and ureter not be attributed both. Why? Because the likelihood, if you have a multifocal disease at a different locations, it's more likely to be a higher risk disease that is misclassified as low risk disease. Number two, the tumor size has to be in so, some sort of volume that is manageable endoscopically, right? Now comes the question, could you get a PERC access to get a specimen out? We used to do that, but with a modern instrument, with a whole retroflexion, everything, uh, with access sheet and so on, we can get to all the locations and probably can achieve an adequate specimen. So it's two centimeters currently to cut off, but we know that the two centimeters is not ideal. There's like three centimeter lesions that could be managed. And there's one centimeter lesions that are difficult to manage. Uh, the cytology needs to be negative because a high-grade cytology is an indication for high-risk disease. And the biopsy specimen, at least I want to know the grade of the tumor, right? The technique I was describing before with holmium excision is sort of the concept of unblock from the bladder, unblock from the upper, upper tract to get a good uh, specimen but it has to be low grade on the uteroscopy and on the CT, as you mentioned, no indication for invasiveness. Of If all those criteria are fulfilled, we feel safely to move with what we call a conservative, but a conservative is the wrong word, is a kidney sparing strategy. And the treatment, the diagnostic, as you mentioned before, the diagnostic step is also the therapeutic step. Now we can talk about it afterwards, Today, we strongly believe the patient needs a re-uteroscopy in some time from, from between four and eight weeks, up to three months. 
to make sure there's no residual tumor. So it's part of that is based on very low level of evidence, a retrospective series we have done and Olivia Traxer has done because there's residual tumor and misclassifications that can happen based on specimen acquisition. So a second intervention, and then the patient is safe for a kidney sparing approach. In general, low-grade tumors come as low-grade tumors back, and this is the same thing in, in the bladder as in upper tract. You have a very low risk of progression. I mean, but I realized those criteria, you know, based on all on retrospective data, poor quality, and then we set them forth to be safe, and now we are a little bit stuck because we want to push the agenda. What do you think? So first of all, I think endoscopic management of upper tract disease is a total labor of love. These are painful cases. They take they can take two, three hours, and I I get it. I mean, we're all human. The desire to say, oh, this is not endoscopically manageable, they're going to need an FRU is, mm. I think, on everybody's mind. So I think we just need to acknowledge that, and I think you're spot on. I mean, A, just estimating the size of a tumor endoscopically is a <laughs> bit of a joke. Um, yeah. You know, two centimeter, I can hardly tell what a tumor is even now after doing a flexible cystoscopy, much less a ureteroscopy. So I think you get a feel. Is this a dangerous tumor? Is right. this a non-dangerous tumor? Okay. So if you feel like it's non-dangerous and, you know, there's of course patient comorbidities, et cetera, then, so I will leave a stent in mm -hmm. uh, and we can maybe talk about that uh, here in a moment. Within f six weeks, do a second look. And if there's anything even remotely suspicious, might a threshold to do a third look is very, very low. I think there mm -hmm. was some nice data from uh, Temple and, and Dr. Bagley, who recently passed that suggested even Absolutely. at a third look, um, you know, you're going to pick up almost 20% of tumors. So, so once I've kind of gone through those second, at least second look, maybe third look, then I'll essentially start alternating imaging. And I think it's absolutely mandatory to have axial imaging to make sure you don't have any extra luminal growth. Absolutely. And then uh, alternate that with ureteroscopies, which are, again, you know, painful. These are anesthetics and older, sicker patients awfully, oftentimes. So maybe I'll just pause there, Shrock, to see what comments you have on that. I think, I think uh, this is also the stretcher. So you're absolutely right. You know, we know from the lower tract tumors that, uh, you know, an experienced urologist and, you know, many, many urologists gain that experience with time. You, you, your visual recognition of the biological behavior of the tumor can be pretty accurate. Now you could be, you know, thinking it's low risk, but it's, it's even a, a high grade tumor that for you seems, doesn't look like high grade, you know, maybe even manageable with this strategy if we had adequate adjuvant therapeutics in the upper tract. But everything is put into the, into the complexity of the patient's general health and, and risks and logic, life expectation, everything together. And so I think, I think. Absolutely. With everything you said, I fully agree. Today, I believe based on not level one, not level two, <laughs> but you know, low level of evidence, but a lot of experience. And, and I think if we're going to go the kidney spaying route, one has to be safe and recognize that intracavitary recurrence is going to happen at a higher frequency. It's okay. You discussed that with the patient. Is that is okay with that? Psychologically, a lot of interventions, very close follow-up, a lot of imaging, a lot of uteroscopies. The only thing I do a little bit different. And Demetrius Bagley, as you mentioned, is, has been, you know, really, uh, one of the godfathers of this specialty or this field. And you and I have learned from Ilya Seltzer, bringing his uh, thoughts, you remember? Sure. And, and, uh, he has taught me a lot of little tricks, what to do, play the stand, maybe drip in the, the chemotherapy and so on. So today I'm not really sure which of those work. We can discuss that. 
but I would leave a double J and, and come back and schedule him like six to, we tried to find out when is the best time. So in the study we did on this eight weeks seemed to be an adequate time, but it's like six, eight or 10 weeks, whoever cares, but at least a second look. And as you said, it's a lot of small work. It's like, you know, stone therapy, you know, you, it's, you cannot leave fragments behind, right? Even you can do is like, this is not a gentleman's or ladies, a mistake. This is, you need to get rid of everything, destroy them. You need, uh, if you have a low grade tumor and you think it's low grade, you need not to obtain always a new specimen. You need to just destroy the other specimens, fulgurate them with the Holman laser. The one thing I do different now, and I think this is very difficultly possible in the United States because of the regulations and reimbursement scheme is I give a single dose of chemotherapy after uroscopy to decrease the bladder cancer recurrence rate that is evident even after uroscopic management. This has been shown after RNU to decrease your bladder cancer recurrence rate by the hell. We give it after endoscopic management as well. Yeah, absolutely. So clinically, I know that's what I do. That's what um, was certainly done by, you know, Vitalian company in, in Dallas. And, um, you know, it may not be a revolutionary game changer, but I'm actually working with our current uh, SUO fellow to design a clinical trial for mm -hmm. a post-operative installation after any endoscopic trip. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the trial gets a little bit sticky, as you can imagine, you know, whether they're going to go on to subsequently receive new agent chemotherapy and FRU and then post-operative insulation or whether this is endoscopically managed. But I think stuff that we can ultimately work through, but I, I mean, clinical practice-wise, I, I feel like it's, you know, again, older, sicker patients. And if you're taking it back for TURs and those are another anesthetic, it's it's not trivial. And then, uh, so intracavity, so that installation though, just to be clear, is mostly to prevent bladder occurrences, not necessarily hoping for any retrograde <laughs> trips to the, to the pelvis and, and prevention of seating. Is that fair? Right. Right. It, I think, I think the, the, you know, in the past, you know, there's been sufficient studies looking at, uh, insulation into the bladder will have a very low likelihood of, you know, retrograde reflux, unless you resected this, so you, you're, you're creating unnecessary trauma, stricture risk and so on. And even in that case, you need 250 cc's to have 50% of the patients having a reflux sufficient to reach the area of your surgery. And thereby you're diluting the, you know, the concentration with chemotherapy is essential. The concentration, the number of colony forming units in BCG is essential. So I do not think that is possible. Even with a stent placement, even a high void, pre a high pressure voider, you're not going to get enough exposure in upper tract. Now the question is, whether with, you know, your gel mito or something like that, you, you could get that. And is that a good adjuvant therapy and so on? I guess this is an open question and trials have been done and there's further trials needed in that area. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, clearly that I think the data, whether you use dual lumen catheters and do like an installation or a percutaneous nephrostomy tube is these are again, individualized case by case recommendations and obviously there's going to be indications, solitary kidneys, et cetera, where you're really trying to mm. do everything humanly possible, recognizing there's no data. But you did touch on, you know, gel mito, which is an FDA approved option now for a uh, low grade upper tract cancer. What are your thoughts and opinions? Well, um, I have to tell you that we, I'm currently working with them to, to design a European study. So I'm, I'm highly biased and, 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 and I've not done any, I'm not on any activities yet with them. We're just in the first stage. By the way, we have a trial, uh, just before I forget, we are also designing a trial for, you know, like everybody, 
And like everybody, after uteroscopy, and you said the trial is so hard to design because your groups and your power you need is like a mind blog. But we should talk about that. Gel Mito, I think I've used it. I used it in compassionate uh, uh, patient uh, use, you know, in, in single cases uh, where they were collecting data for the FDA. We've used it in several patients where we had uh, good results. This is, um, you know, just observation of single cases. The data from um, the clinical trial, the Olympus trial that has been reported is certainly uh, on some ways promising, some ways a little bit, you know, the stricture rates and other downsides that are a little bit uh, worrisome. I think the concept of slow release and, and a gel that could, you know, have that effect could be, is, is a brilliant concept. Will it work for the upper tract? I think we need further data, but uh, certainly this could be uh, something, an additional tool in our armamentarium for those cases that you mentioned that we really have to go all the way. And you have to, with a patient, a patient in a patient agreement, say how much, how much interventions do they need to go? We do another point I want to say, I do the, the follow-up uroscopies outpatient with not even rarely with sedation, with local anesthesia. We are in a very much a torture setting, right? But it works, single-use uteroscope, and I, I go up and I make an intervention. And then, as you say, I alternate the, it's the follow-up. Um, so I don't take him back to the OR for that. And I do it uh, sedation, like a colonoscopy, worst case scenario. But it, it is for this elderly population, a lot of, you know, follow-up every three months. But they need the, every real unit, uh, you know, at a certain age, comorbid uh, metabolic syndrome and so on. So you're pushing the agenda in many of these patients. I think the gel mito, just to say an additional thing that I've, I've used in the past, and that is um, based on, on Demetrius Bagley's concept of, and, and, and where Studer have done this, and I've used it in the past at PERC and let the BCG drip in in those patients that are high risk CIS type of guys, you know, not for adjuvant, but really for CIS. I think for CIS, I do not like to take the kidney out if possible. Uh, so I've used uh, uh, that strategy, but I've moved to the uh, MonoJ and let it drip in and they come every week. I do, uh, I place a mono J, I make sure with the retro rate, I make sure they don't have an infection and no extravasation on their retrograde, no perforation I've done and let the BCG drop in over an hour as I described previously by Orstuder and other strategies to, to have a, you know, in a hope that that carcinoma site too is somehow treated. I know this is weak evidence. Yeah, but again, I think we're, we're we're kind of doing the best we can, and sometimes it's not just us driving the decision making here. You know, in older infirm patients, not not willing to go on dialysis, et cetera. Then um, you know we don't want to make that decision lightly. Clearly, this has been such a rich discussion, and we're not even to get to okay. talk about uh, <laughs> you know the management of high risk uh, cancer. But it sounds like, if I may, that uh, generally percutaneous resections, you know, outside of maybe extremely large tumors are something that you've largely moved away from, mm -hmm. you know, again, recognizing that there may be, you know, specific scenarios. But uh, to maybe round out kidney sparing approaches, a couple of comments on segmental ureterectomy, partial ureterectomy, surgical tips, tricks, indications, uh, as we, you know, approach about 45 minutes. Yes. I, I think, uh, you know, it's it's a long range of, of options we have. So as I'm getting, you know, kind of older, I am less risk averse in, in what I'm trying for the patients, you know, outside of clinical trials, but it's certainly the distal ureter is a fantastic option, you know, for whatever, even in, in, in invasive tumors, 
to get, you know, adequate lymphadenectomy. Plus, if, if you think it's invasive, if you're not sure, but it can distribute your rectum, re-implant, sausage, bore, flap, whatever you want. So you can reach a long uh, ureters. I've, I've had patients with the complete ureter, you know, involved. Uh, uh, I've done uh, ileal interpositions. I've done ileal bar flaps, you know, up to the you know, pelvis if it's a large bladder and so on. So uh, we've, we all have done, you know, those crazy indications, rare indications. But in general, segmental uterectomy, uh, except the distal uterectomy, is a rare indication. But I've done it in, 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 in mid-ureter tumors where I thought, it's, you know, um, I've, I've taken just a tumor out and I've just re-anastomosed it. I've done these cases. They've been successful so far, I have to say, but it's, you know, in a matter of time until you have some form of problems that arise, strictures, um, poor, you know, blood supply to the mid ureter, to the proximal ureter as well. Problems that could arise. And number two, you have to be conscious of that and, and discuss that with a patient. But also, uh, I think, um, the other, the other strategy that I think uh, certainly makes sense is to be really very aggressive with your endoscopic management, those that you don't think, even in the ureter. But uh, I, I can really count on my hand the segmental ureterectomies, mid-ureter and proximal ureter I've done. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, they're rare. You know, it's an older, sicker yeah. patient. And, um, you know, the things that I typically try to teach the residents and fellows are make sure you clear the remainder of the upper tract. You know, they need to get a comprehensive ureteroscopy Absolutely. at some point. And then, you know, I think it can be tricky, you know, say it's a distal ureterectomy, I like to clip above and ideally below, but if it really extends down to the bladder cuff, when you're doing the bladder cuff, I think technically to really get through the perivesical fat, get through the detrusor, have your mucosa out, isolate that so you're not having tumor spill and where you're, you know, really literally holding your, you've got your stay stitch in so that, that you're not having any um, tumor spill into the peritoneum, for instance, or, or putting yourself at a higher risk of a lo local bladder recurrence. Any just kind of surgical trips on that, Chirac? Yes, you know, we looked, uh, and, and uh, you guys have also, from, from UT Southwestern, uh, uh, have published papers on this, and we have published a bunch of papers in it in multiple groups. You know, we, we, we have also extra validation courts we have looked at that have tried to, to look at what is the best management of the distal ureter during radical nephroterectomy, but could be also applied to just distal ureterectomy. What consistent the data uh, shows us, but uh, I'm not really sure what to make out of it. It's number one message. Number one is, is, you know, you need to remove the whole distributor with a adequate bladder cup. Okay. We kind of all agree with that. That's common sense. But interestingly, all the early strategies that we've used to, you know, bypass that laparoscopically doing something, stapling across and so on have been inadequate. Endoscopically managing and resecting it have been kind of in inadequate to consistently achieve a bladder cuff that is a sufficient uh, specimen acquisition to ensure that we have a lower risk of intravesical recurrence, which is the endpoint in many of these tumors. Not uh, the metastasis and survival, but uh, the intravesical recurrence rate and, you know, in the high-grade tumors also, obviously, the other two endpoints. So uh, what I find interesting is you, you really, I, I like to see the superior vesicle artery. I like to see the ureter. I, I like to dissect this all out. If I don't see that, I'm not dissected far enough. And you're always kind of in a major surprise how far the ureter still is moving into that bladder. And you say you're at the end and you're still not there. So for me, I've even robotically, it sounds kind of a crazy and overkill. And this is what we found in all our data. But I think this has just to do with, you know, selection bias. I open the bladder and I like to look at it from the bladder. So, you know, retroflexing on the ureter, making sure I have it all out. 
and, and I don't like that extra vesicle approach for myself to make sure, but I agree that it, in any concept, it cannot be inferior if you mm -hmm. remove the whole specimen. I'm putting the stage stitches, as you said, and so on. The seeding is obviously a problem. Um, so you want to ensure that you don't have seeding and, 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 uh, one strategy that at UT Southwestern, you and I have learned and I like a lot, but it's no evidence for that is giving the chemotherapy during the, the surgery. So you start with giving the chemotherapy, you let it in the bladder, you put a three grade catheter, you wash out until you get to that part. It's already out of the system. You may lower it, but you have to make sure you don't have a bladder cancer. Right. Even if you don't do that, you have to make sure you don't have an active bladder cancer. The, the one thing you want to also make sure you don't, by sewing it together, you don't specifically robotically, I've seen it a few times happen. Don't, you know, sew the other ureter. You have to have a visualization of the other ureter, right? So closing that up and making sure that you have a good watertight closure, uh, because that will also determine when you're going to give the post-operative single shot chemotherapeutic uh, dose. I love the strategy you mentioned, clipping the ureter, specifically radical nephrotrectomy, I immediately clip below the tumor to decrease the uh, thing. And I don't do it with distal cuffs because I don't think it, it's going to have, you know, pressure going up, but probably makes sense. But clipping above and below the tumor certainly makes sort of a sense. Yeah, no, these are um, all kind of spot on. And I certainly asked the anesthesiologist as soon as I closed the bladder, can you please mark the urine output? Because I was going to make sure I haven't bagged the other one. Indigo carmine, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think these are all things where if you say healthily paranoid, you're going to avoid some, you know, potentially catastrophic, uh, we have all seen everything. It's, the, it's always surprising me. The things you can see is it. I've never, you know, I had one teacher that always said, I've never seen this before. <laughs> everything can happen. <laughs> yep. Everything can happen. And I, I like also uh, to, to really think what's going to happen afterwards. So obviously a guy that you got a distal urethrectomy, I, I love to do a, a sort of a, good psoas hitch, a wide, you know, thing. So I can manage that upper tract easily with my follow-up uteroscopies if I need it, if, oh, and imaging as well. Yeah. And I mean, if you have it nice and wide, oftentimes at your surveillance cystoscopies, you can just drive your cystoscope right. right up into the kidney and it makes it, uh, you know, pretty, pretty manageable. Well, Chirac, I think, uh, I mean, this has just been a wealth of information for me kind of running Thank through, you. you know, picking your brain on diagnosis and management, uh, of, of, I guess of kidney sparing approaches and maybe, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, any mm. just kind of thoughts that you'd like to share with the listenership on your mentality, philosophy, and approach to this disease? Yeah, I said it. Uh, thank you, Aditya. First of all, thank you so much. And, and, and it's kind of, you know, talking to you is, you know, talking to myself almost because we, we, we share the same school, you know, with UT Southwestern, Memorial Sloan Kettering, strong influence in UT Southwestern of MD Anderson thought about this, you know, philosophy about these diseases, uh, urethral carcinoma specifically. So I think, I think there's the one thing I want to really push the agenda is the two points we touched about. First of all, it's, I think it's a moving target. We're learning a lot about upper tract. I think with the wealth of genetic data that has come with you majorly involved with the group, uh, with Jonathan Coleman, uh, David Solid and so on. I think we've learned a lot. We're seeing specifically in this disease, we're going to have the genetic and epigenetic signatures will help us refine our strategies better in the future because our pathologic specimens are just inadequate. Biomarkers and so on will be much more important in this disease than in other diseases specifically given the heterogeneity of this disease and, and xenograft models and so on to identify therapy. I think very important is 
to understand that we, we really have to get away from the monotherapy. It's the easiest radical net for you to recommend for everybody. It's easy. It's, it's good reimbursement. It's, you know, it's just a destructive surgery. So you, you don't have the reconstruction. The pain is not that much. Patients not going to come with erectile dysfunction or whatever. So everybody loves it. It's laparoscopically an easy intervention to do. And also the distal cuff open or robotically can be done easily like done. Whatever you want with the new robotic systems, you can do both in one axis. But that is not the end point. The end point is to do what the patient needs, right? At that moment. So I think avoiding overtreatment whenever you come with good uteroscopic diagnosis and imaging diagnosis. We didn't talk about FTG PET, which could have some benefit in, in staging a little bit, but probably not as much as we think. Newer, hopefully, uh, uh, tracers will be better. It will never read the PSMA PET as we have seen in prostate cancer. But number two, also, um, we, we have not really discussed it, but we've touched on it. I think for those patients that need radical therapy, multimodal therapy is so important because the risk of macrometastasis is very important and really understanding which patients to, to choose for neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy is essential, specifically in, in this space where, you know, nivolumab has been, is a player in, in an adjuvant setting, uh, the PAL trial, despite not hitting DF, hitting DFS, but not overall survival. What are you going to make out of that? But the same thing happens with the nivolumab. And I think this is, these are key issues. And I think, um, it's not the tool you use, but the philosophy you use that will determine and your patient, uh, with the patient design that patient centered and patient together with the patient, this strategy that fits him or her with that tumor at that moment are based on that biology at the time. So kind of fulfilling the promise of personalized precision medicine is even more important in upper tract than in other, di other disease because they are not strict schemes and the heterogeneity of the disease is out. And each time you intervene with a tumor, you're changing the natural history, similar to bladder cancer, right? Seeding happens, this happens, that happens. So you, you, you're changing the biology, you're changing the clinical behavior. So over treatment, under treatment is what we have to get away from. Yeah, I think that's, that's spot on, Shrock. And, you know, it just maybe reflecting a bit from the 2009 cancer paper, Outcomes of Radical Nephrorectomy, to where we are now with the advances in sequencing, the advances in understanding, you know, the biology between Lynch syndrome and um, aristocolic acid, prospective level one data like the PAUT trial, it's really been an explosion. And, um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that exciting this international interest in upper tract you know squarely falls in your in your domain oh, in, a, in really. a large in a large place so um you know thanks for your contributions for upper tract and you know for your thoughts today it's really been a thank pleasure you. and look forward to having you again soon thank you so much aditya thank you so much i know it's very early in la late in vienna and 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 uh thank you for the love to this and for the podcast is you know enriching for all of us and i think uh, sharing the little I've learned over the years, but, uh, the last thing I want to say, all this is only possible. And I'm not going to say it's because of patient son, like, you know, all these sentences, everybody say it's because people have to come together to address a rare tumor and urology is full of rare tumors, penis cancer, urethral, urethral cancer. We have a lot of rare tumors, even testicular cancer. If you think about it, it's not that common disease. So putting all these brilliant minds together, getting the researchers activated to it, the clinicians, young dynamic minds, pushing the agenda, learning from other specialties, learning from the endoscopists, from the stone experts and so on. 
has really been, and, and the technological access has revolutionized our view of the disease, but has not changed the biology of the disease, just helped us to address the biology better. All right, perfect, Sharak. Well, I know you've got plenty going on, man. It's really nice to spend some time talking with you and, uh, you know, congrats on the baby and best of luck with the next six Thank months. Uh, <laughs> and um, Late bloomer, a late bloomer here. <laughs> fantastic. Well, thanks, Sharak. Thank you. Really, really Thank nice you. to see you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Ishan Sangwan. And Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.